This episode is brought to you by Gang the Passion Coaching and Consulting. Visit gangthepassion.com to find out more about our coaching, consulting, training, and speaking services. Welcome to Gang the Passion with hosts Todd Foster, Alyssa Stanley, and Kelly Scar. Thank you for joining us today, Marty. Thank you for having me. All right, let's take a minute and you give us kind of an overview of who is Marty Strong. Um, I guess at the core, I, I'm I'm a Nebraska farm boy, even though I didn't grow up on a farm. Both of my parents were Depression era farmers, uh, children of farmers and big families, et cetera. And uh, in the case of my mom, she moved to um, Sioux City, Iowa pretty early in her childhood. My dad ended up moving off the farm. He was the youngest of uh, six kids when uh, his father was killed in a tractor accident at at the age of 26 or 27. So um, he worked the farm with his uh, siblings for a little bit, ended up moving to uh, Sioux City. And my grandmother worked in the uh, Singer Sewing Factory for 40 years. So I say that because that is, uh, you know, your traditional, typical World War II, Bob Hope generation um, background. And anybody, in, it's a baby boomer that comes from that background. You know, you, you always return things and you make sure they look better than when you borrowed them. There's all those cliche lines and, you know, you don't get an allowance, you, you, you know, you don't work here, you, you're part of the family, on and on and on. So that kind of, that kind of start really shaped me as a, as a person. And I ended up uh, leaving Nebraska when I was 17 to join the Navy and ended up in uh, basic SEAL training and and eventually having successfully completed that, ended up in the SEAL teams, starting out at SEAL Team 2 on the East Coast uh, as an enlisted man. I was uh, enlisted for 10 years. I got to the uh, rank of Chief Petty Officer, had been going to school at night and was selected for Officer Candidate School. So then I went to officer's candidate school and was a SEAL officer for the next 10 years for a 20-year career. Uh, I finished that. I went into financial services, first as a financial advisor for Lake Mason Wood Walker out of Baltimore. And then I moved uh, after a couple of years to United Bank of Switzerland as a portfolio manager. And all in about seven and a half years in that career track. Then 9-11 happened. Sold my book of business to another broker because I didn't feel comfortable making money for people while the war was starting up and they wouldn't let me back in. There was no real capacity for me in the government because of my, my uh, disability with my back. So I went ahead and um, started doing consulting on counterterrorism and anti-terrorism. Did that for a couple of years as a consultant, ended up with a large defense firm and eventually with a very small uh, defense firm as a, uh, as an equity partner. And I am a CEO and chief strategy officer of a uh, an ESOP, an employee-owned enterprise that has two operating companies, the original government contracting company I joined about 12 years ago, and a healthcare company that uh, I worked to purchase about five years ago. So there's actually two operating companies, and then I'm in a management holding company above them. Wow. Uh, so first off, I want to thank you for your service. Um, it, it's... It's amazing to me. I, I just, I, Todd and Alyssa will tell you, I'm, I'm obsessed with uh, the SEAL mindset and, and, uh, 
it's just, it's, it's such an interesting culture, um, you know, being on the outside and, and having the opportunity to look at it from, you know, multiple books. And obviously it's become, I think more and more part of, uh, you know, part of our, our kind of our, our culture as a society as a whole, you know, more popular Navy SEALs have become, you know, the movie Navy SEALs with Charlie Sheen. I think maybe it started there and it just kind of unfolded the, the you know, the, the more and more uh, the SEALs became part of the, you know, part of the conversation, part of the media. But I, I don't want to go there just yet. Um, what I'm really interested to know is we're, we're seeing a lot of SEALs, uh, you know, leave, leave the teams, leave the service and enter into corporate America and enter into business. I'm curious what the crossover is between SEAL mindset and success in business. Like, what is it that, now I'm not saying that every SEAL leaves the teams and goes into businesses and is a success, but there are a select few um, that either go into corporate America or they, they write books and they go on these speaking tours and, and all of this stuff. What is it? What's the crossover? What is it that, that makes these people so special that there is a certain level of success that they can achieve outside of the teams? Well, the first one I think would be the discipline that goes along with not being willing to quit. And that's a selected character trait. It's not something that they train you to do. It's they test you and they run you through all kinds of different challenges in the beginning to weed out the, the personalities and the, I guess the, psycholo the psychology profiles that kind of grin and bear it. And, and then later on, they, do, they just keep amping up those those ex experiences, those challenges, not so they're testing to see if you're going to break whatever, but just so that you realize that when you're going to be used as a seal, it's going to be in a really crazy, dramatic, and, and sometimes, um, I guess, unsafe way, because you're, you're designed to go in and, and the army special forces and, and the Marine, uh, special forces, MARSOC, now the Marine Raiders, same kind of pedigree, you're supposed to go out and do something that the conventional forces can't do for some reason. And Mission Impossible is kind of, kind of uh, a quaint way of putting it because if it could be done by a jet, if it could be done by an artillery round, if it could be done by a conventional infantry force, they'd be, there, they'd be the ones doing it. And that's, they have missions and they're well-defined and they're equipped for that. But go find some guy in the middle of nowhere where there's bad guys everywhere and it's not clearly a war or it's not a well-defined boundaries of of uh of who the good guys are and the bad guys are um having discretion and being able to exercise judgment on the scene with what you see and being trusted to have the intellect to have that judgment these are all things that are unique to special forces special operations and to the seals so those character traits which you have i think they're innate when you're when you first come to the the, the process they they uh they rise to the top and then they get honed and trained and sharpened now, when you step out of uniform, you may not know how to apply them in the outside commercial context. And that's usually the, the wandering part for most of the guys in special ops when they get out. They, they go from having a, an intense, fulfilling, very, very um, high value task in life because nobody sends them to do something that's frivolous. And suddenly you're out there and you ask, you know, you're being interviewed and you say, well, what are you guys, what's your goal? Oh, we're trying to get our EBITDA up to so-and-so. And it just, it falls flat. And none of that, none of that makes, makes sense or clicks. So the, the, the hard part of this is I'm actually working with the SEAL Veterans Foundation right now to define this interesting question. Nobody's ever asked me that before. Um, to try to figure out, is it 
one path or multiple paths. And I think we're at the point now it's, it's like any other person in the United States coming out of high school, whatever, what's going to drive your passion. What's going to excite you. You know, what do you align with? Um, I say economically, because some people want a job and they can't become a, a self-made uh, entrepreneur. That takes a lot of risk. It might be you're hawking your home and you maybe have little kids and stuff. So there's, there's essentially the same approach. And like, what color is your parachute for seals? I like that pun. If we parachute jump. Um, and we have to lay out all these different lanes and all these different levels on the, on the ladders for each of these lanes. And, and then it's like anybody else, where are they going to sync up? Where are they going to align? Where are they going to feel comfortable? But they're almost, everybody has that first disconnect. I did too, that you come out and it's, you know, for God country, you're always, the missions are always about real bad guys. You're, you're protecting or rescuing people that would die otherwise. And you go from this level of, wow, this has got to happen because we've got to do this because it's so important to, it's a paycheck. Marty, I love your last name, Marty Strong. So when you came out of the womb, you knew you were going to be a Navy SEAL. And you probably thought to yourself, I don't want to be a Navy SEAL yet with a name Marty Strong. You must be a Navy SEAL. At what point in your young life did you say, you know what, with a name Marty Strong, I'm going to be a Navy SEAL? I don't think I thought that until the day I graduated from SEAL training. I, uh, um, I was a very undersized guy going in there. and. I mean, if you can imagine somebody who's 17 and 125 pounds trying to do a walk on to uh, the Cornhuskers or Notre Dame's football team or something, that's how bad it was like, you know, the Rudy thing. Um, and there were other, other guys my size, but out of our class of 126, probably 80% of them look like super athletes, you know, and I was in awe and I didn't think there was a chance in hell I was going to get through the whole thing. And you end up getting a humility along with understanding what your, uh, what your risk tolerance is and what kind of your internal drive is as you're going through the six month process. And that humility keeps you from asking that question or assuming that until the day, until the day you actually hear the bell ring when your class leader brings the bell three times at graduation, which rings your class out. And now you're going off to be a SEAL, the SEAL team. And that moment's when you stop looking over your shoulder, wondering whether they're going to say, ah, just kidding you out of here. <laughs> what I love about it is that you clearly have changed. Now you look like you're 350 all muscle and six foot 10. If for those that can't see you, I'm sitting on a book. Yeah. There we yeah. go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. When you think about the mental mindset, because we've discussed the Navy SEALs and how it is all mental. And here you are the guy that's not the, I guess, typical picture of a Navy SEAL. And I'm guessing there's also people that were much bigger than you who did not make it through the entire SEAL program uh, because they were thinking that they could get through it with their physical and so their mental abilities. My question for you is this. I uh, follow a lot about military and PTSD. And one thing I don't see, at least from my perception, is that the SEALs and uh, the Rangers and things aren't having the issues that other people are having. Although it sounds like you probably see worse things than most uh, enlisted people do. Is that true? Or is it something that maybe the SEALs and all of the elite teams are discussing or exactly what is that? It's not true. Statistically, it's true that PTSD for more, for most units 
and most members of units that weren't elite is derived from some other things. It might be a traumatic event, you know, something they did or participated in or something they witnessed. And, and that's kind of what the, the classic images of being shell-shocked or, or battle fatigue, et cetera, which, what is now PTSD. I think in the elite forces, it goes to what I was saying about the fog and the wandering after you're out of uniform. You lose yourself. You are a part of something that's you know, extremely important, especially if you come right out of multiple rotations of battle and either because of uh, being wounded and you can't, go, you can't stay or because the war ends or whatever. Uh, and I, when I was in the Vietnam guys, we're all kind of in the same mode. You know, what do I do if I know what I'm really great at and I know I should be used for, but there's no reason for me. There's no purpose. At least if I'm in the team, I'm around guys like me. But if I leave the team, I've lost all that and I've left all that behind me and it's not, not it's not going to be found outside. So um, my understanding nowadays, it's mostly about the lack of connectedness with the other guys, the other warriors, the other people that they knew, first off, the, the big feeling of guilt that you uh, aren't back in the fight. I mean, it's funny. I mean, as soon as I saw the second plane hit the tower and I'd been retired for six years, I immediately thought, how the hell do I get back in? And I've got a guy working for me right now. That's exactly what he did. He quit his job and he went, went right to the um, SEAL team on base here and said, how do I do it? And four or five months later, they got him back in and lots and lots of guys did that in all the service, all the services, but that's, that is a psychological problem. If you can't figure out what you are and what matters anymore. And it's a little bit different than the trauma related PTSD uh, cause and effect. Well, it's almost like they, they, it's not that they train your personality out of you, but they, they just, they have you so laser focused on, you know, like that front sight focus, right? That, that mission mentality. It's, it's everything to do with the SEAL teams, everything to do with the, with the mission, everything to do with the training. And, and you're just so immersed in it. And once, once you leave that, once that, once you leave that immersion, there's just, like you said, you're just kind of wandering through life at that point. So I'm, I'm interested to hear about your work with, with the, uh, the, the seal, what is it? The seal, um, seal foundation, uh, seal veterans foundation, seal foundation, seal veterans foundation. So, um, what is it that you guys are, are, what's the focus there? Is it helping guys transition out of the teams, out of the special forces, out of those, out of those groups and into regular, uh, corporate life, or just, is it managing life just simply, or is, is it kind of all encompassing? Yes. Okay. That's the problem. Um, <laughs> that's the problem. I spent three hours with one of the people from the foundation last week. Cause you can't be all things to all people unless you have, you know, a hundred million dollars sitting in the bank and then you can, you can try to be all things to all people, but there are so many different resources and so many different channels and lanes out there, which, you know, weren't around after Vietnam, but they're, they're there now, which is great. So what we were thinking was that, you know, is there a niche that, that the foundation can focus on? And it's not transition assistance in the way it's, it's practiced in the military, which is, you know, how to wear a suit, how to, how to write a resume, how to do an interview, that kind of stuff, which that's, that's good if you've never done all those things. But um, it's more about the reality of, of the jobs outside that are available to you. And I, I give speeches and I, and I give pro bono speeches to military groups and and I've evolved over the last couple of years into more of a scared straight, 
tough love kind of approach to the speech. And I'll just ask everybody, you know, how long did it take for you to become a SEAL or how long did it take for you to become a Ranger or Marine where you were in good standing? You were considered what they call an operator. Somebody would could go to combat. Everybody would trust that they wouldn't mess up. And the answer was usually three years on average. So why would you expect if you come out of uniform that you can go work for Target or you can go work for IBM or you can go work, you know, start your own landscaping company and it's going to happen any sooner than three years? That's that's the way the universe works. You have to start out as an apprentice. You've got all the drive. You've got, you've got so much more going for you that you don't understand. But everybody has to start and understand the business. You want to you own a restaurant? Go work in a restaurant. Learn all the parts and pieces of being in a restaurant. Don't, don't just come in and say, because I'm a SEAL and I had enough money to buy a restaurant, my restaurant's going to be successful. You may try to outwork that, that problem set. It's not going to work because you're not, you're still an apprentice, right? So that's, I think, where we're kind of honing in on is, is a, as a high, you know, highest and best use for that, that particular foundation. Because and then the other thing is to be uh, phone a friend and pass it forward. Find all these other organizations. And if you have issues with your financial management, if you have issues with a medical problem, if you have issues with, um, you know, getting a college education or something, be a link. Set up a set up a structure that they can come in there, and we're a hub for passing the baton to the right the right organization that's doing it well in a niche fashion. One thing you learned when you were in the Navy SEALs was uh, things that don't always go as planned. Is that correct? Uh, never go as planned. But we always have to have a really cool plan and, and rehearse that plan, even though we all know it's not going to go to plan. All right. And so you can have a crisis there. And what I like about uh, Be Nimble is that you discuss crisis management. Could you discuss uh, and tell our listeners what you mean by that when it comes down to business itself? Sure. So I, I put the word creative in the subtitle, you know, the creative Navy SEAL mindset, because in, in thinking about what, what was different, think, think of this. Yeah, Navy SEALs, and they all have to pass a certain IQ um, competency test that's way up there with other sailors that are operating computers and missile systems and everything. So kind of like a college level athlete with that kind of that kind of capability um, intellectually. And then they're taught how to work together because it'd be easy if you, if you didn't teach this, they'd all be superstars. They'd all be alpha alphas. And, you know, and I've, I've often thought when I was became an officer, I'd have a room full of Napoleons. If I bumped my head, all of them would stand up and say, I'm in charge now, you know, no, no delay, no, no, no uh, hesitation. So the creativity part of it, the way to really kind of picture it, I think is, Think of like a what you would imagine a really good superstar band must feel like when they're right in the zone and they're creating incredible music where they're just they're thinking each other's thoughts. They're anticipating they're they're adding things that nobody complains about because it was the right thing to add at the right time. That's what it's like to have a bunch of guys with that kind of pedigree in a room and there's a problem to solve. And that doesn't matter whether it's a problem to solve. When you've got time and you've got to put it into a nice, pretty plan and PowerPoint, and you need to rehearse it. And then, but also when you're, when you, when you get off of the, uh, the boat or you jump out of the plane and you're sitting there in the dark and everything they told you was going to happen or be there isn't. And now you got to do it all over again. You just don't have to brief anybody or rehearse it, but it's the same, same cre creativity, the same kind of, and dealing with a, a problem, a challenge requires that, that kind of approach to the threat of the challenge. If, if you see it as a threat that, that you have to run away from or defend against, 
there's a whole different set, different kind of psychology. And a lot of commercial people, employees, management, doesn't matter who they are. If they haven't been involved in, you know, threat recognition or they haven't been uh, confronted with a threat, COVID would be a perfect one. All of a sudden your, your supply chain shuts down. What if nobody in that entire company had ever seen a supply chain completely shut down for even a day, let alone a month or two months? That's devastating. So what do you do? You can crawl in, you know, in the fetal position in the, in the corner, or you can do that psychologically as a management team, or you can roll your sleeves up and say, okay, we got to figure something out here. And, and that's kind of like the pickup game I was describing when the, when the, the facts that you based your plan on don't turn out to be there on the, on the actual target site. So those are the kinds of things that, that I realized both in managing money, because there's a lot of, you have a lot of clients and when like today, you know, today, um, you know, last couple of days, the market goes down 2000 points, phones are ringing off the hook, emails are exploding and there's guys managing money and people want to know what's going to happen to it. What's going to happen to me. So it's a crisis. And if that money management person is comfortable with handling crisis and chaos, they're going to take each call and each email at a time and they're going to reflect on the plan. They're going to give some historical context. They're going to talk about the real true long-term impact or lack thereof on the United States as opposed to Europe. And he's going to talk them off the ledge and then he's going to pick up the next call. But that's going to be 10% of them. 90% of them are going to just walk away from the phone and hope, and hope Putin stops tomorrow morning and it all goes away and the market comes back. That applies to any business, any industry, and any team of leaders, managers, and technical experts within an industry when they're confronted with, with crisis. And the chaos is usually created by the, the people's reaction to the crisis, right? If, if COVID or pandemic is a crisis, maybe the chaos is the government deciding to shut everything down, but not everywhere in the United States equally and not have the same rules and then change the rules every couple of days. That's the chaos part. <laughs> so they reacted to, to crisis by creating chaos because there was uncertainty. But you can also lead when that crisis happens and try to try to, I guess, manage and master the chaos a little. It's it's it is an achievable art, but it's a leadership art. How does someone realize that crisis is actually a crisis and not just smoke where there's no fire right now? I think the there's a you know a phrase that's been tossed around a lot in the last couple of years: the zoom in, zoom out. Uh, concept. If you are if you're comfortable, and my second book's more about that. It's it's uh, be visionary, the uh, strategic leadership in the age of optimization. It's basically that strategy is the enemy of optimization. Everybody in business is focused on measuring and KPIs and all that, and th- so they're not zooming out. If you zoom out and look at the horizon, that's when you see the the little enemy heads pop up over the horizon, and you go, uh oh, I've got I've got some time. I've got to figure out what I'm going to do. I see them coming. If you've never looked up, if you're focusing on how we're going to do this week, I think you get where I'm going here. You know, the perception is based on the, the model that each person uses to look at the world. And if they look at the world in one day increments, if they're moving through life, looking at the tips of their toes, they're going to be surprised and in crisis almost all the time. So you can't, you know, one of the greatest uh, lessons from all the military books that I've read, and it's repeated often, doesn't matter whether it's a war college that does it uh, or, a, um, or a scholar, one of the key way, reasons you fail in, in war is failure to anticipate that simple sentence. And to anticipate means you have to think through and game through in your mind what the future might look like. 
and therefore what the threat might look like or the opportunity might look like. Marty, you are the CEO of four companies, also an author of both Be Nimble and Be Visionary. All of this is around mindset and leadership lessons learned. I can't help but wonder if your view around mindset and leadership shifted from when you were in the SEALs versus in the the world of entrepreneurship and, and building these four companies. How did that change? I think the the biggest difference is the materials you have to work with. So for example, if I wanted to build a house and, and in the SEAL teams, I had steel and glass and um, I had a team of people that were absolutely expert in building and they could build it within a very short period of time. and It would be done almost perfectly outside of the SEAL teams. I find that I have uh, some old bricks. Uh, I don't have any mortar and only half the people that are there to try to build it have ever built one before. And the other half are arguing with each other about how to build it. And if it does get built, it's going to take a really long time. <laughs> so that's the challenge. The, the actual principles haven't changed as, a, as an objective, as a goal for me ever. In any company, whether it's my own personal uh, performance uh, as a money manager or, you know, as a consultant or any of these, these different jobs I've had, you go in and you take inventory of what you have in front of you. and and really, it's not the people's fault. It's they, they come out of high school, they come out of college. And there's so there's so few true leaders that care about grooming and guiding and mentoring and coaching. You're basically for your first couple of jobs. It's, you know, sit in cubicle 47, shut up, execute the job that your resume said you could do and go. And then that's it. And, and, and I'll tell you, even in, in the companies that I run, the bigger the companies get, the harder it is to push it down to all levels. If it's just me and five people in a startup, I know it's happening because I'm watching in and I, I only pick leaders that work for me that would do the same thing and care about the people holistically, not just did they do their job today. Back to that anticipation thing, you know, for the future look. Invest in people because you know someday you may need more from them than, you, than you're asking from them now. But when you get to the point where you're managing 600 people and you've got layers of leadership between you and them, I guarantee you, I don't care what kind of leader you are, it's eroding. And, and if, it hap if it's happening, it's happening because there's some other odd situation where a leader who cared popped in somewhere. It isn't by policy or by design because people always kind of default as managers and leaders, they default to whatever they think the standard is. And if they were mistreated or if they were treated neutrally or if they were, you know, really mentored, coached and given a lot of uh, insight into how to be a good leader, they tend to reflect that background, their own experience. And then that's what you end up working for. One of those three characters. So let's, let's build on, on the book then a little bit to uh, be nimble. So one of the part of the description talks about a clear and straightforward approach to decision-making that can be employed regardless of personal or business objectives. Can you kind of walk us through what you mean, what you mean by that? Sure. So the book's focused on, Companies, situations, it can be organizations, it can be a nonprofit for all that matter. And people that are in leadership positions or aspiring to be leaders in those kinds of situations, because that's where all the drama happens. Now I'm talking about real drama. I'm talking about we can't make payroll next week, or we lost our one big customer, or you know, all we have to do is is get the inspector in here to clear the restaurant and we're live, but we're two weeks behind schedule. And, you know, I've trained all the staff, all those kinds of situations. 
where the dynamic is fluid. It's, it's not your set piece, big company. Everybody kind of knows what they're doing. You have a hundred accountants. If one quits or breaks their leg, you have 99 accountants. You know, if, if you have one accountant in a small organization and that accountant quits, gets sick, whatever, you have zero accountants. So there's, there's a, there's a dynamic in those structures. And sometimes it can be an entrepreneurial division or department in a bigger organization, like a subsidiary being treated like a startup. So you have the same kind of stress, that kind of stress, that kind of dynamic really requires more leadership than management. And I, I make the point in the book that my, my definition of management is what somebody does to maintain the integrity of the processes and the systems and the people, the talent as designed and, and have that keep rolling forward nice and steady. So if every time you, you uh, turn on a TV with a remote, it turns on, the systems are working. Uh, if every time the person that you hired to be an accountant does what they were told to do as an accountant to standard, the system's working. And if the process works, the process works. That static kind of steady she goes maintenance thing is, is kind of what management is in my mind. Leadership, for some reason, uh, fell out of vogue about 20 years ago when there was a big push about management being the be all end all. But there is a distinction in my mind and in the book. You don't need leadership until everything's falling apart. You don't need leadership until the one accountant quits. You don't need leadership until the process fails to, to perform and deliver what the process has always delivered. When the world changes, either internally or externally, and the systems start to fall apart or can't keep up, or the people start to fall apart or can't keep up, or the processes do likewise, you can't manage your way through that. You have to lead your way through that. And nine times out of 10, the decision process from beginning to end for managers and leaders is to try to anticipate failures in people, systems, and processes in enough time that you can start kind of wargaming amongst yourselves that we never, never get to the, to the crisis moment. We never get to the leadership requirement because we're thinking this through and we're being proactive and we're making decisions in advance of the problem. And therefore, always scaling, not just scaling when we run into a problem. We're always changing and adapting and, and being nimble, essentially, right? Um, and that, that should be an everyday methodology for decision makers. It just doesn't have to be when the building's on fire. If you are enjoying this episode, please leave a five-star review at your favorite podcast provider. Yeah, I, I, I love the concept of decentralized command, which is, you know, the concept that you guys, I think, I believe is employed in special forces. How does that translate over into the business world then? Exactly what you're talking about in terms of leadership and management. And do you do you give the managers the ability to, you know, maybe lead and step up and have that that opportunity? Or do you give them decision making capabilities that um, would typically in, in a in a traditional uh, business structure where you've got the CEO top-down type management uh, where they've got to go up the chain of command to get the, get the uh, go ahead to go and do the thing under decentralized, that, that, that theory under decentralized command and business, you're giving the, uh, the, the manager the opportunity to go ahead and make the decision. Now, obviously not to spend a million dollars on, you know, that they don't have, but to make, you know, smaller decisions where it's taking it off the plate of, of the, the ultimate leadership of the company. Am I kind of nailing that on the head, Marty, or am I off base there? Yeah, you're, you're there. The, um, in the military, there's leading and there's delegating. Again, leading is something you do when you have to lead. 
delegating is something you do and it's kind of fire and forget in, in the more high end units, you know, an F-35 pilot isn't going out there and micromanaging what the, the maintenance crew did or what the, the, the crew that's coming in, putting, you know, the weapons on the, into the aircraft, you're not sitting out there for 48 hours watching them and taking pictures of them and trying to catch them doing something wrong. He trusts that they're going to execute their role. And it's the same way in the SEAL teams. And you, you basically, it's kind of that trust or trust, but verify thing. You watch, you look, uh, you, you hope your subordinate leaders are having the, are having the, the same mindset and the teams they have to, because it'll muck it up. You can't do lots of parallel activity through a central command process of leadership. You can only do one thing at a time. You shut every, you shut 14 people down when you talk to the one person and don't let the other 13 people do anything until you're done talking to the one person. It just doesn't make any sense at all. It doesn't make sense in any kind of human activity, I, I, I believe. So we're back to kind of the difference of the, the culture in a company and the mixed bag of prospects you have when you step in in leadership. All the people that you have, all your employees came from all these different backgrounds. And I'm talking about professional backgrounds. They may have been abused. They may, they, every time somebody says, hey, we're thinking of moving to another building, three accountants may quit because that's always in their past has been the uh, foreshadowing of a, a merger <laughs> and they're going to lose their jobs. I mean, I'm not kidding. I'm not, I'm not making this up. This is the kind of feedback we would get because someplace else they were treated that way or someplace else they ended up with a phobia or fear that was developed and they were carrying it forward like baggage and the leaders are the same way. So if you came from a situation where you were managing and leading and you were browbeat by the senior leaders about failure, then failure is not an option. And failure is, um, you have to be perfect. Essentially, there's no, no failure authorized. You turn around and that lightning bolt comes all the way down the chain of command, all the way through that company. Everybody's concerned about their job. Everybody's concerned to, to fail. Now, if, if you're doing brain surgery, there might be some room for that. Right. But if you're doing things like strategic development, nobody, nobody wants to take a shot because everybody's afraid to fail. So in that environment, the leaders are all going to give you little incremental baby steps that have zero failure attached to them, no risk. And therefore there's no strategy and therefore there's no stretch. So in, in both those situations, technical execution or bigger picture thinking, um, you have to let people fail. I, I have a, I think it's a chapter in it called 80, my 85% rule. I tell everybody, hey, I figure you're going to get 85% of it right because you're supposed to, you're paid to, you're qualified to. You're not going to get 100% of it right and because things move so fast. I don't care about the other 15% because by the time you get to the end of the 85, we may have shifted, shifted focus and now we're going to work on something else. And if you can't get the last 15% on your own and it's critical that we do, I'm going to pile resources on it. It's not just you. All of us are going to jump in there. But it does, it does go from the top down. If, if the CEO or the president or the owner is a stress bucket every day and, and, you know, scaring the hell out of everybody and making them feel like they're going to, they're going to get fired if they fail, that you're going to have centralized control, whether you want to call it that or not. They're going to ask the boss every day, what, what next boss? Yeah. Do you believe that goes back to ego a little bit? Uh, the reason I'm bringing that up, it's, you know, you look at elite teams like you were part of. And if I was a Navy SEAL, I'd probably put a tattoo on my forehead said, I'm a Navy SEAL. Kind of like how I won the Cub Scout final derby contest. I won first place. I don't tell the story that I was only 12 year old there. My car was the only one went down track yet. I won first place. How do you keep ego out of a role like that? Not just the Navy yet in any high position, a leader or management without having that fear 
where people are fear-based and they're almost, as you said, micromanaging without knowing they're really doing that in the first place. It's hard. It's easier as, as somebody who's mentored a lot of leaders, <clears throat> it's, it's easier from that perspective because you're outside, you're not, you know, a potential victim <laughs> in the organization. <laughs> um, Good place to be. Like the number two guy trying to, you know, set things straight for the guy who's got the, the problem. Um, you know, I'll tell you what, SEALs have huge egos, absolutely huge egos. And, you know, when I was in, you didn't talk about the SEALs or the, the Charlie Sheen movie came out the year before I, I got out. And there was one book at that time. So, you know, it was kind of frowned upon and, and amongst the peer group, if you, if you showed off your ego too much, you, you heard about it really fast, but we all had huge egos. I just told you a while ago, you know, a room full of Napoleons, right? Now the egos are purposeful. It's more about, I think I'm smart enough and knowledgeable enough and experienced enough to lead this. Or my my idea is a good idea and should be incorporated. It's very functional kind of ego. The other thing that offsets the ego, though, what most people would see as a negative of ego, and I I almost called the the first book "Be Humble" because I realized that humility is also kind of like the flip side of the coin with most special operators, and it's definitely there if you've been in combat, but it's it's there even before that because you fail a lot. They put you in all kinds of situations where you're mostly failing, you know, for a long time as an individual, as a team, small team, big team, once in a while, you, you, you succeed in every way. And if you, if I had a group of seals in a room with a case of beer and the four of you were sitting there and we started talking about seal stories, you would not hear, I don't care how many hours or at least until the case of beer is gone. So let's say 20 minutes. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> but, but if you were sitting there for two hours, you would not hear one single story about a success because they're no fun they're, and they're not funny. <laughs> so part of the humility is you have to laugh. The fact you screwed it up as a team, as an individual, you, you know, you feel bad when it happens and then you double down and say, how do I, how do I keep that from happening again? Uh, you seek help. You ask other people, can, did you see what I did? What did I do? Could I fix that? Cause you're like a professional athlete in that way. You're always trying to tune up to the standard and not let anybody down. But, but the humility part of it is, um, you know, if you walk into a bar and you're six foot three and a five foot two guy beats you up, the next time you walk into a bar and a five foot three come, guy comes up to you, you got a different mindset. You may have had ego before, but you realize, hey, there's some guys out there that, that I, 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 I got to be a little bit more humble here because I got really worked over last time. And that's how life is, you know, and you can have ego until you run into reality and reality sets you straight. The problem is if you're, say, a founder and you have no controls, there's no board, there's no other mechanisms of, of restraint. Um, that's usually where you see an, an ego or, you know, either you're the predominant owner in a big corporation or something. You can, your ego uh, can be a negative or it can be a positive. It could be the, the light, you know, the jet fuel that's making everything go. It could be the insight like Steve Jobs. I know you guys don't agree with this, but, you know, you engineers are going to build a phone that's like a computer the size of this pack of cigarettes, you know? And they all said, yeah, no, no, we're not. Well, you go, okay, well, they're not going to be here. And eventually he got the engineers that would do it. He's, he's seen as an obnoxious guy, big ego, but look at all the things he did with the ego. I mean, he was extremely creative. And what he was really bumping up against was a whole bunch of people that didn't want to take risks. A bunch of people that have been trained as engineers not to take risks. And, and 
And they didn't even want to take a risk when the boss was saying, I want you to take a risk. So ego is not always bad, but that's the way it happens in the teams. It's, it's kind of balanced with the humility part. In all your years of experience, have you found that anyone can be a leader or are there certain characteristics that will make someone maybe a, a better leader or be more prone to be a leader within an organization? I think there's an absolute natural percentage of the population, doesn't matter what your gender is, that innately knows how to lead without training being applied. Now, I don't, I, what I mean is not, not overt leadership training. It came from parents. It came from observing other leaders and saying, that's the right way to handle situations. That's how I will do it whenever it happens to me. Um, it, it's other influences and a sense that, that good things need to be done. And sometimes not everybody wants to step up. And so when that moment happens, I know I should step up without anything else. There's just, you know, it's like a core value system. And that's where you hear the, you know, the anecdotal stories of, you know, everybody screaming in a, in a room and there's a fire or whatever. And then somebody just stands up, takes charge, directs them to the door, calms everybody down, gets them out. And it turns out he's just a regular dude, you know, or, or just a, you know, a, a soccer mom, not an ex Marine colonel of, you know, with combat. It's just a person. Right. And then they go back to being a regular person. That's about 40%. I'd say the other 40%, um, that, that could be good leaders are trainable. And there's probably 20% that they're just their, their, their core, their upbringing, et cetera. They're so risk adverse. They're so concerned about self. They can't get into a selfless mode. You have to be a little bit self, a little bit selfless to be a good leader because you can't be focusing on how do I look while I'm leading? Cause you're going to be leading <laughs> or what's going to happen to me, you know, as I'm leading, that's not really leading. So where you have the disconnect is maybe you don't have a way of finding the first 40%. They, you don't, you don't look for them in college. There, there's not a training academy in college to, you know, to find the, the instinctive leader group and then move them to an MBA program or something. You know, it's, it's not like that. And, and the Navy, believe it or not, when I went to officer's Canada school, it was four months and it was all Naval engineering. So I'm a SEAL enlisted guy. And I'm being asked to go up on the board and draw out turbines and, you know, schematics from memory and then go through tracing problems. Now, everybody else in the room is an engineering student. That's why they came to the Navy. They're all going to a secondary engineering school after that. Then they're going to go to a ship to be engineering guys. And I actually asked the, the guy in charge of Officer's Cadet School at one point, um, why aren't you guys teaching any leadership? I mean, this is, these are the officers. Well, he said, we don't have time in four months. They teach, them at the, they teach it at the academies like West Point and Annapolis, but they, they didn't feel like it was a, a, a priority in a four-month initial course, kind of like the boot camp roster. So um, you have to, it, it'd be nice if they did that, but they don't. So the second thing is the kind of training people get for leadership. If it's managers teaching people to be leaders, they're really teaching them to be managers. So they're kind of missing the target, right? And I, I, I haven't had much problem and guys I know from our uh, collective and similar backgrounds have not had much problem. A lot of it is, it's, it's almost like you're a, you're a coach on a, on a little league team or something. You come in and you go, okay, guys, this is going to be, this is going to be a mess, but I'm going to put some of you guys in charge. We're going to rotate who's in charge. And uh, don't worry if you screw it up. I'm here. You know, I'm putting you there. 
and I don't care if this is, I'm talking to VPs, it, it could be any group and let's just go at this thing. And if they came from weird backgrounds, they're staring at me like it's a trap. Right. But if, the, if you're consistent that way, that becomes a way to wean them away from their fear, wean them away from their, their, their poor management or leadership training in the past and start getting them to kind of an experiential leadership training process. Cause that's the only place you get humble because you have to go in just like in the seals. You have to go in, try, fail, try, fail, try, fail, get sharper, smarter, stronger, more resilient and calmer and a lot wiser. How do you remain calm? Because my perception of you is you have no blood pressure <laughs> or a very small one and you think about everything in advance, like just walking out the front door, you have 18 different escape routes. What stresses you out? And then when you do get stressed out, how do you handle it? Well, first off, Todd, if you're a Navy SEAL and you're walking out of your house, you don't need any escape routes. The other guy. <laughs> the other guy needs it, right? The other, yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah, the other, those other guys need the escape routes. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Uh, yep, there's no ego there at all. Sorry. <laughs> um, you know, when it, the physical stress has a lot to do with your, your physical health. So I, I stay in really good shape. Um, as soon as this is over, I'm going in and doing a Peloton um, interval run. I'm, I'm going to do a half marathon here in the middle of, of March. Uh, you have to watch what you eat. Those things are all important because they all degrade, you know, the foundation of your ability to be anything. Um, and I do have a really low blood pressure, but it's, it's, the, I think it's the part I was trying to, um, allude to earlier where the more you fail and survive, the more calm you get, especially in, in very specific situations. So the first time you get shot at and, and usually you don't realize you're being shot at when you're shot at, believe it or not, it doesn't sound like they don't, they can't train you by shooting at you and say, Oh, that sound, you know? Um, so you get out there and you've heard shots fired. You've trained, you've heard that but you haven't heard them maybe crack over the top of your head or you haven't heard them hit a bullet, hit a piece of wood or hit a piece of corrugated steel or hit dirt or hit a person. I mean, I I almost feel like they should have recordings of this stuff because when it first happens, you're not really aware. And then you start to become aware. And then depending on what your job is, you start thinking, okay, you know, am I ready? Was I, am I prepared for this? So after the first time, the second time is a lot easier. The third time, it's like a non-event. And by the fourth, fifth, sixth time, especially guys have been in sustained combat and you see it in movies, you know, they hear something and go, Oh, that's an outgoing mortar. Uh, that's not even nowhere near us. Oh, that guys, that's because they've been there and now they've got, they're tuned into the environment that those threats are identified and, and they've got it. It's the same way in every other uh, walk of life. If I went in to something I'd never been involved in before, I'd have to go through that first apprentice experience. I'd have to react to it. I'd have to, deal with my reaction and have to think it through and then maybe not do it ever again, or maybe do it again. And I'd be stronger. The word where you get screwed up here is if you experience it and you walk back and you say, I'm not going to do that again. Cause all you've left there is the fear and the, and the barrier that you were that close to pushing through and making decisions is another one of those types of things. I mean, if you make a decision, you make a multi-million dollar decision, you make a hiring firing decision. Um, you make decisions like I'm, doing a real estate, commercial real estate thing with, the, with one of the companies, um, there's 50 different moving parts. Every one of them could go wrong, you know? And so I'm sitting there looking at it going, okay, at some point I got to pull the trigger and make it happen. 
And if I'd never done any of that before, I would probably fret and analyze it to death and not decide. So that's a big part of it. You, the wisdom, the, the, the calmness has to do with, you know, knowing what you can do and knowing that if, if something bad happens, you know, you can handle it because what you're going to do is you're going to settle yourself, open your mind and think through exactly what you're seeing in front of you, you know, without using kind of old information to color it in a way that, that it's kind of skew the new information. You know, that's the other part of, of being nimble is when you get a crisis, you get a challenge, you get a, a threat thrown in front of you, try to clear all that crap out. You know, all the good stuff. You just got a bonus last week. You're not a superhero. Forget about that. You, you know, you, your wife dumped you last week. That doesn't have anything to do with this. You know, clear your mind and listen to what somebody's saying. Cause you're, if you came in in a crisis mode that morning and then something happened, you're going to treat it like it's a twice the crisis because you're in that mind state. It just takes time and repetition. Quite frankly, I believe, and let me know if I'm wrong, that a Navy SEAL is a mix of reactive and proactive. In management leadership, uh, I've always thought that leaders are more proactive and managers, I'm sorry, leaders are more proactive and managers are more reactive. Do you see that's the case or am I just all over the place and I should go take my blood pressure right now? Actually, that is a great question, Todd. It really is because we actually are pre- proactive all the time, almost never reactive. And here's the reason why. When you're being proactive, you train on how you're going to react, if that makes sense. So in military units, infantry units, et cetera, they're called immediate action drills. You're walking down a trail, somebody fires from your right, or somebody spots somebody with a gun to their left, and somebody yells out, contact right, contact left. And everybody is trained like a football team to go through the football plays. They know exactly what to do. There's no commands required. Uh, nobody has to tell you how to operate your weapon. Now you can take that simple uh, example and go much, much further. So when we have in our environment, the SEALs, we know what we're going to be doing. They're not going to ask us to go to Wall Street and open up a kiosk and start trading stocks. So within, within our world, we anticipate, we think through, we, we war game in our minds individually. It, down to what where our gear is on, on our on our combat vest you know we think it through we practice it we try a couple of different ways that didn't work so we're always predicting and, and anticipating something that's going to stop us from doing a, kind of a linear progression of what we want to do and then we have a whole list of practiced reactions it's, it's like if you were a nuclear power plant you would have thought through all the things you have to do for all the potential symptoms that are displayed on you know, the systems dashboard, whatever, you wouldn't just all get in a room and go, what the hell? What do you want to do first? You know, you wouldn't do that. It's all thought out. Somebody would get a big book, they whip it open, they go through some kind of computer um, that would have an algorithm and say, it's, it's in this area, it's the water, it's the coolant containment thing, boom, 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 isolated, because it's all thought out ahead of time. It's already premeditated reaction. That's more like what you see in the SEAL teams. And I tell you, it, it's very valuable outside. I, I try to do it. I try to instill that in all the organizations I've been involved in. And that actually takes a lot easier than, say, leadership and training, training your uh, and mentoring your people. Everybody gets that, you know, because it feels like an insurance policy. And so they're, if they're risk focused, they're all in on that. Um, I do have to say, I found it completely fascinating when I was listening to you talk about stressors. And you went from 
um, bullets whizzing by your head, hitting wood and knowing whether it's at you or whether it's not at you to walking into a boardroom. Like to me that those are not interconnected. Like do not put me in the same place where bullets are whizzing past me, walk me into a boardroom any day. Um, but it's a real testament to your ability to stay calm and, and kind of keep emotions out of situations and hyper-focus on what you're doing right then and there to be able to even bring those two components into the same comparison. I found that fascinating. Yeah, well, emotion can, emotions can either be a distraction or they can be fuel. And I, I tend to I tend to focus it as like rocket fuel. I, I still feel all the emotions and everything. Like I'm going to use, I'm going to use this to some good purpose. So, so essentially you don't let emotions control you. You almost control them. Is Much that what as you're I saying? can. Yeah. Well, I don't want really to control it. I just, I, I feel the same kind of build up the pressure, et cetera. I don't let it take over my brain. So my brain stops thinking through whatever it is that caused me to be emotional. And then yeah. I try to use that as energy to focus on whatever it is that made me emotional. I mean, I mean, I'm, I, I'm, uh, I'm more of a positive emotional guy. I laugh a lot. <laughs> um, and, uh, I don't really get upset with people very often because I've seen a lot of weird people. And I, so back to that, that three, three right here, practice, three right here. practice <laughs> makes perfect. I mean, if you've had a lot of people scream at you, shout at you, if you lived in New Jersey, New York and guys are yelling at you and everything, you're used to it. If you're from, uh, Oklahoma and you're walking down the street and, and, in Manhattan and some guy goes, ah, you're mad. You want to go, you want to kick that guy's butt because you haven't had that happen to you before, you know? So the more, the more that you have emotional events happen to you, you know, again, you, you, you of a kind anyway, especially in business and leadership, you, you tend mm-hmm. to build up a, a reservoir of strength and judgment and insight and the emotion isn't as out of control. Yeah. And I think so much can be learned from you with m- uh, leadership and mindset. Where can people find your books? So I have a author's website. It's MartyStrongBeNimble.com. And there's a, there's a lot of articles and things on that site, but there's also at the bottom, uh, the covers of my two books, Be Nimble and Be Visionary, which are both on Amazon. And then there's also um, two covers for my two uh, novel series, which uh, one's based on the seals. That's a four four volume series right now i'm halfway through the fifth one and the other four are time travel it's a time travel series called called the time time warrior sagas which there's a lot of seal stuff in there it's a seal ethos way of writing about the seal ethos and the warrior brotherhood and all that without guns i like to go with the time travel thing do you see if we could go into the future do you see seals being humans in 50 years from now or do you think it will be completely all robots yeah, if I was going to do that movie, it would be uh, the robots are in Space Force and they're doing all stuff and then they're, they all get wiped out someplace and nobody knows why. And they have to, you know, scrounge up a bunch of old 70-year-old SEAL team guys because it's all about being able to do the impossible with without any information. And uh, they can't trust their robots anymore because they obviously failed. And then they'll go off and then you'll, you'll see what happens. Well, I think The Rock would be proud to play you in that movie. <laughs> I'd be happy if he did. That'd be, that'd be great. Then I'd get a new nickname. What is your nickname? Well, my nickname would be Pebble if he was playing me because I, I, I couldn't be the rock. I, I didn't have a, I didn't have a nickname. 
everybody, uh, everybody has call signs and you know, the old deal, you don't get to pick your own call sign. And I had lots of different call signs. I had thunder one was probably the coolest one I had. I was Yoda one time. Uh, I was Pliskin, which I thought was pretty cool for snake Pliskin and escape from New York. I, mm-hmm. I actually like that one. And I was virus. I was virus one time. And I've got virus <laughs> embroidered on a hat that somebody gave me because I was virus for a while. Cause they said I was in and in, into everything and I was everywhere and they couldn't <laughs> seem to get rid of me. <laughs> Thanks for listening to gain the passion. Please rate review and share the podcast. And don't forget to hit the follow or subscribe button.